spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 198th annual Subliminal Session Podcast. Your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody and my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too shabby. I want to tell you about my last Friday, if I may. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, let's go. Okay, so off the air, I kind of lightly mentioned it to you. This metal show we found out about, we bought tickets. I was pumped about it. Because it's kind of like the first concert of the year. You know, we're going to go have a good time, injure our necks from headbang and all that fun stuff. The show's supposed to start at like, fuck, I don't know, like 7 or 7.30-ish. So we try to get there at about 6, right? Um, Everyone says, I've never been to this venue before. Everyone's like, oh, don't worry, it's not that popular. You can find parking right outside. And there is a lot of parking outside. We get there, there's fucking, I swear to God, like two to 300 people waiting to get in the door. Every spot around there is completely filled to the gills, right? And yep. uh, we're driving around, and then you soon become apparent that the neighborhood around this place is a little rough, okay? <laughs> um, I, I'm not saying this to be mean, but I think I drove by... The Minnesota version of Skid Row. Obviously, there I didn't really feel comfortable parking there and walking, especially because my friend, who's a, a lady, I didn't want her walking by anybody like that at night. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's has any un, nefarious intentions, we'll just say. So we ended up literally parking at the Twin Stadium and taking an Uber to this place, right? Yeah. Which it was only you know, as far as lengths go, maybe two miles away. Of course, that's 20 minutes of inner city travel time. But yeah, but yeah, it uh, once we finally got there, we got I was shocked how reasonable the beers were. It was like seven dollars for a 20 ounce is either a 20 or 24 ounce can of beer. Excellent. But yeah, it was good. Chelsea Grin, Carnifax of Sulphur. And uh, Let Them Suffer. Awesome bands. I had such a good time. Uh, My eardrums weren't even thumping when I got done. So it was good. We had a great time. I saw a chick come running running out of the mosh pit. Her fucking nose bleeding and she was crying. You got to stay out of there, man. If you're below five foot, I would not recommend going in there. Oh, definitely. Below five foot, under 110 pounds. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. Unless you're one of those crazy little fuckers who loves to jump up and headbutt people. I'd just stay out of there. It was funny because I there's always a stereotype that I've always seen in every mosh pit, and that is a large, chubby man with his shirt off that reeks of B.O., and yeah. you better believe I saw him on that night. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's no, <laughs> there's no, ooh, getting ready for the big show, better shower up, better. No, uh-uh. No. He's got his fucking, that's part of his fucking uh, ensemble for that night is <laughs> horrendous B.O. So, you know, one more thing here before we get rolling. Weirdest thing. Okay. So we were walking through the crowd to get back to like where we were kind of chilling at. Right. And we're in the middle of all these people squeezing through. There's this large man with a tank top, muscular dude. Right. We're crossing paths. He's heading the other way. All of a sudden he stops and he raises his hand like way above his head. And he's like, what's up, man? I was like, hey, how's it going? He's like, man, I just spilled my beer. I got to go get another one. I'm like, okay. He's like, you better go get one. He's like, all right, man, I'll see you later. And he just like, I, I think he thought I was somebody else. It was so weird. He just like stops. He's like, what's up, man? Just in case he knew you. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually done that before. So I'm okay with faces, terrible with names. So if I, if I see someone and think that they might be someone I know, if I look at them and they kind of look at me as if maybe they know me, I will go interact with them, but make it as if I'm just being nice to a stranger or possibly being a little bit kind of distant from a, an acquaintance. Yeah. That kind of situation. Yeah. So <laughs> you're very neutral. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> it was just such a weird fucking weird thing. I don't know. It. I- I thought you were going to say he had coke energy, though. It sounded like. <laughs> no, he had like j- semi-drunk guy who was like happy to see somebody uh, energy in the middle of a very narrow walking path. Oh, OK. He was just happy to not be at the gym or at home. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. 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 Something. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my mom's basement, so I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I think he had that energy, whatever that energy is. But uh but, uh, Phil, yeah, we, we got kind of a big boy here. Um, yep. So I'm going to just go ahead and, and let you take the reins here. Yeah, I, uh, I've had an extra week to yeah. write this, and I, uh, I did a little bit of a uh, little bit extra today. <laughs> so we're going to hit it off pretty, uh, pretty early today. Survival. The facing of one's end and the resistance towards that demise will make a person do crazy things, turn against every instinct in their bones. Make choices that they wouldn't have imagined making during any of the normal or good times in their lives. However, what happens when a person feels that the best course of action isn't action at all, rather taking up with your enemy in order to survive just a little longer? This condition, which goes right into the topic for today's episode, is known as Stockholm Syndrome which is defined as a psychological condition where a victim will empathize with and align their goals with those of their captors or abusers. Though Stockholm Syndrome is not officially in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as the DSM-5, it's it's a very well-known thing and an accepted thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's what George W. Bush had in regards to Dick Cheney, um, you know, he <laughs> he just went along with all the evil shit Dick Cheney did, clearly. So, okay, is Stockholm from the the town, or is that someone's last name? I've always kind of wondered that. Well, actually, I'm going to get into it just okay. a tiny bit, just to kind of explain where it comes from. Okay. So, there was actually um, an event 
that the condition was named after, and it came from a botched bank robbery in the city in which the name originated from, which is Stockholm, Sweden, uh, the capital of Sweden. This is where a career criminal who was uh, on furlough from the prison from his prison sentence, Jean Eric Olsen, robbed the credit banking in <laughs> Normalstorg, Stockholm. On August 23rd, 1973. And it's also kind of big because uh, probably one of the biggest, you know, things to kind of come out of Sweden in the crime world was a man named Clark Olofsson. And he kind of became like really popular from what, what, what happened here. He was actually let out of prison so that he could be taken down to the bank because the guy who robbed the bank wanted him there. So authorities got him out of jail and made him another kind of uh i don't know if he would be more like a he's a considered a bank robber at that point or you know someone who's also being held hostage but they they added him into the mix which american cops would never do no absolutely not not at least not (laughs) on the record um when you were reading off these places like credit banking (laughs) in normal (laughs) strong i was like are these real places are you are you pulling my leg right now? Oh, it's kind of funny because the bank's name is Credit Banking, which sounds like you just mixed together the words credit and bank, which is what it is, which is what a bank is, basically. It honestly so, sounds like a scam guy calls you and says, hello, this is Kent from Credit Banking, and we see you have unnecessary charges. Can you give us your social security number to verify Jesus. How's Lagos this time of year and hang up yeah. the phone? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's kind of funny. We've mentioned it before, but uh, 1066 Battle of Hastings, when the Normans in um, northwestern France, they were descended when they invaded you know, Britain and took it over, uh, William the Conqueror. So they were actually descended from uh, invaders from the Nordic countries. So a lot of English now is actually derived from kind of the nordic languages really we've talked about it before yeah okay yeah would you've talked about it on your um the hell series was it about uh iceland greenland or you talk about elsewhere? oh the 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 viking series Yeah. yeah yes yeah i did talk about that quite a bit so basically when the normans invaded the norman language kind of became the call it the the aristocratic language so things like like a name like beef venison that kind of stuff became the like things that we think of like as like fancier terms for meat became like the the aristocrats words names like pig cow lamb that was all the the old saxon words the old english words and that was like the lower class so if you call your steak Basically, if you call it cow, that's kind of like the same thing as a higher class person calls it beef. That situation. Okay. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to test this on people. And Mm. if they say cow, I'm going to say you're a white trash piece of shit. Just so you know. (laughs) Yeah. I also like how, so you don't really realize in it when seeing people's last names, but there's a lot of Nordic people who either have S-O-N at the end of their name or D-O-T-T-E-R, daughter. So basically the way that the names used to go is it would be 
your dad's first name and then son because you were like Olaf's son. You yeah. were Olaf's yeah. son. Or, you know, Eric's son. Or, you know, that kind of deal. Olsen. Wasn't it also so, the town? No. Like, not, it, I mean, it wasn't really the town you were from. Wasn't part of your name, I don't think. I always, I heard some of them, like Olsen could be, he's from the town of Ol, but I, that could be wrong because, but that might've been an Ellis Island thing if they didn't have a last name. Oh, gotcha. Okay. No, I never really heard that. I have heard people who like reached Ellis Island and the only word that they really like could convey was like what city they were from or what, what town they were from. Yeah. So if they were French, their last name was just, oh yeah, French. And then you're French now. (laughs) You know, your last name's French forever kind of deal. You know what? Ellis Island, I don't know, fascinating place, especially for Americans where it's like just how much stuff was affected for future (laughs) citizens of the United States just from those people getting off the boat. How much some bureaucrat who hated his job, who didn't give a fuck, may have affected just thousands of fucking families and all their yep. generations to come with yep. weird fucking names. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I wish it was still a job. Like I would love that job. Just give people last names. Be fucking awesome. Oh, I would have, I would have so much fun with it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many Mace Windus there would be? Holy shit. <laughs> every single, every single redhead's last name would now be ginger. That's yeah. Every yep. single time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow, Ginger's the most popular last name in the country. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> now, that's not quite the focus of today's episode. I will say, though, uh, you could have an entire episode on that guy, and it's it's an amazing story. Basically, uh, the fucking the Swedish judicial system, the courts, everything was just totally lax. You basically got, like, time out from prison, and you could just go home, like, on holiday. So it was amazing. <laughs> they claim that he escaped all these times, but really yeah. he just walked away. Yeah. So he's yeah. got an amazing story. But the focus of today's episode really goes to someone else who okay. captivated the nation with the drama of her kidnapping and the fear for her safety. Though those sentiments would change quickly as she would pull a Ric Flair heel turn that shocked the world. Showing up on security cameras, side by side with her captors, holding the victims of their crimes at gunpoint. Seemingly in league with the highly sought-after terrorist organization, SLA, or Simonese Liberation Army. And I said that completely wrong, but fuck it. And And I am, of course, talking about Patty Hearst, the wealthy heiress to the Hearst family fortune, either a victim of kidnapping and ransom or an alleged terrorist sympathizer, depending on who you ask. Okay. I gotta say, Phil, when I saw Patty Hearst, I thought you were talking about the Charles Manson one, but very clearly you're not. No. Yeah. Okay. Um, there, there, so there was, the 70s was pretty big for uh, kidnappings, bombings, terrorist shit. So, yeah, a lot of uh, actually a lot of these stories kind of bleed into each other in crazy ways. Kind of love her last name, though. I got to say that I wish my last name was Hearst, kind of like the car. Oh, just just for the money aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Have that last name. Call up the Hearst Corporation and try to get a little of that medium. (laughs) 
Tell him that Hunter Hearst Helmsley is my dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm of Paul Levesque, I'm of Paul Levesque fame. Please <laughs> give by, me his, me his By salary. the way, I hope you're watching all those fuck the the wrestling videos I'm sending you on Instagram about people who are look like they're severely injured from a wrestling match. Oh yeah, no, I did. I saw the uh, Shane this morning. Yeah, no, I've good. been watching them. Good, good. <laughs> now, first off, Patty Hurst. Born Patricia Campbell Hurst in Los Angeles, California on February 20th, 1954. Uh, she was born to Catherine Wood Campbell, the, her last name Hurst at the time, and her father, Randolph Emerson Hurst, who was one of the sons of the media magnate and controversial robber baron, William Randolph Hurst. Making Patricia's upbringing one of wealth and privilege, she grew up primarily in Southern California, attending some of the best private schools in the area. This until transferring from Menlo College early on in Atherton, California, to the University of California at Berkeley. Okay, all right. So, a lot of rich people names going on here. Um, yeah. Jesus, Randolph Emerson Hearst, that is... I would not, not, I'm not jealous of that man's name. Yeah. So, you know, uh, have you ever heard about the Hearst family? I know that you guys on Bumblebutt used to talk about um, William Randolph Hearst and like yellow journalism a lot. Uh, his, okay. you know, how he was going up against the weed, like trying to make marijuana illegal, that kind of shit. That's this guy. That's this guy. Yes. Um, he okay. was, he was the, the guy who was in charge of all the newspapers who didn't want hemp to be legal. Gotcha. Okay. I, you're refreshing my memory on this. Like the name sounds so familiar, but I have a feeling you're gonna, as we go on here, maybe it'll flare up more for me. Obviously we talked about a lot of, uh, yellow journalism and all that stuff. Adam was a very big supporter of marijuana. Yeah. You know, <laughs> By the way, big news, uh, the marijuana bill passed in the House of Minnesota. It's going to the Senate now on Friday where all the dirty liberals are. So you know what's going to happen there. And then uh, the governor's going to sign it. And then you got legal weed in Minnesota. I think it's the first state in the Midwest. Maybe Michigan. Really? No, I, I thought Iowa had it. Are you kidding me? Hell no. no. Well. I don't know. Well, okay. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I had thought maybe it's just, well, I mean, pretty much around the country, like no one's really following the weed laws anymore. From what I've heard, like the cops aren't really enforcing it anywhere. It's become legal so many places. So true, but I can, I, you gotta, okay. You know how Iowa kind of, um, is basically like a circle. Okay. You'll, they'll go, Liberal, then they go conservative, then they go liberal, then they go conservative. It just keeps going around and around. Right now, they're in the conservative end. So there's no marijuana unless God smoked marijuana in the Bible. <laughs> so unless there's proof that yeah. he did, there is no legal marijuana in Iowa. Yeah, here's the thing. So all of the young people um, start turning 18 and they start voting. And then pretty much all at once... Everyone under the age of 25 just kind of moves out of Iowa. 
and it turns red again. That's kind of <laughs> what happens. So only the old people are voting. True. Very true. But uh, yeah, it's like like water falling off a roof. It forms up and then eventually it drops. So well, all I can tell you is when it happens, Minnesota is going to be having a good influx of money because Minnesota, or Wisconsin and Iowa are going to be trying to suck on that teat um, of the oh, marijuana. Yeah. Well, Wisconsin's been sucking off of the fireworks teat for so long, getting all the no, what, we've fucking been, Iowans and we've been yeah, we've been sucking off them for their fireworks. Yeah, because no, no, with the money mm. they sell the fireworks. Yeah, yeah, right? yep, yeah, yep. And a lot of people right. from Wisconsin work in Minnesota, but that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about <laughs> Patricia. Yeah, it's because Wisconsin's a shithole; they don't have jobs. There you but go. But enough said about Wisconsin. So getting back to this, like I mentioned before, uh, she spent her whole youth going to private colleges, private you know schools, everything, the works. Uh, Menlo College in Atherton is you know very nice private college. She decides though, uh, just about a year in, to transfer to University of California at Berkeley, which obviously her well-to-do parents hate. What they also hate is while enrolled at Berkeley, Patricia was studying art history at the time. And she lived, exactly. (laughs) She lived in a really just average kind of apartment slash maybe townhouse, you might call it, with her fiance, Stephen Weed. At the time, the, you know, kind of lived a normal life, you know, going to school at a normal school, didn't really stand out much except for her last name, which I imagine she probably didn't tell many people what her last name was. True. Uh, she didn't really have any private security. Uh, her father really never considered that his family might be at risk, mostly because even though he was personally, you know, had money, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't drop dead wealthy or, you know, he, he had a lot of brothers and he wasn't really like in control of the Hearst Corporation or anything like that. So being one of many descendants, he just kind of figured, well, I'm not really a central figure. I'm not really a known figure. So there's no risk of exposure for my children just living normal lives. Though, obviously, we're going to get into it. He would be very mistaken. Yeah. Okay. I see. He thought she would be fine because there's a lot of Hearst. But... um. People are smarter than he maybe is giving them credit for. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, kind of one of those situations where hiding in plain sight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you don't really. And I mean, it's back. I mean, there's serial killers going up and down Florida at the time. Uh, there's a lot of civil unrest in, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, too. But it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, well, I mean, where was Dick? Got to live her life, you know? Yeah. This motherfucker's name is Steven Weed? Yes. That okay. is her fiance at the time's name. Okay. So this dude's name last name's Weed, and her dad wants to outlaw weed. Her grandpa. Her grandpa to outlaw weed. Okay. Yeah, basically uh, worked his ass off to make marijuana illegal. Sometimes you just you can't make this shit up. Oh yeah, maybe definitely rebelling against the family here, yeah. really, maybe. Um, yeah. Especially, your last name is Weed, and you're going to school at Berkeley in 1974. That's definitely the best time to have that last name. Yeah. Either then, or possibly any other time you go to Berkeley and your last name is Weed. Yeah, so. art history too, so there's that. 
she's learning art history definitely you couldn't waste money any better you you can waste your family's billions of dollars any better than studying art history at Berkeley. Ah, philosophy so. <laughs> philosophy maybe maybe philosophy yeah. yeah they actually give you less money if you have a philosophy degree and try <laughs> to get a normal job <laughs> so on february 4th 1974 uh, it happened the unthinkable a group of armed men and women three in total approached apartment number four at 2603 Benavue Street in Berkeley, California. They knocked on the door. This was before barging in, assaulting and tying up her fiancé, Stephen Weed, along with a neighbor who was just trying to help. The group would then blindfold and carry Patricia out of the townhome, going outside and throwing her into the trunk of a waiting car. The armed group would then turn their guns against Patricia and Stevens' neighbors, who had left their homes after hearing all of the commotion. All of the people were forced to take cover as the bandits laid down suppression fire as they made their escape. Luckily, none of the crowd outside were harmed. It kind of sounds like these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, definitely had a plan for this. It wasn't at all random. I mean, how many kidnappers lay down suppression fire? Yeah, you'll kind of hear, like, who these people think that they are and kind of figure out, like, what's kind of going on with them. So below, I included an image, apparently still standing. Uh, There's an image of the townhome, and it was last sold in 2019. Uh, Take a look at it. It definitely needs some new siding. I I will say that. um, Or it needs to be cleaned or something. But overall, pretty nice. Yeah. Not half bad for, uh, you know, an apartment for a kid going to school. How much would you say that that uh, unit sold for in 2019? In, um, okay, Berkeley is in what city? San Francisco. San Francisco, 500000 Nope, 800 grand. Woo! And okay. that was 2019 money. That baby's over. Is uh, that because of the infamy of it, or is it just because it's in San Francisco? I don't know. I think it's just because it's in San Francisco. So actually, they still had the posting up for it. So I'm going to read off the posting real quick. Okay. Uh, Charming Elmwood townhouse, two bedrooms, one bath, two-story unit, rear unit entry, off street with private deck in the back, open living space with great flow and modern feeling, large closets with an additional storage unit in the garage, great condition, do not disturb occupants. Do not basically kidnap. telling do not disturb occupants because this is like almost a fucking historical place. Yeah. Considering what happened. Yeah. Here. Do not hold occupants hostage. Do not <laughs> lay down suppression fire at the neighbors. Do not yeah, throw this, them in the trunk. This place is not a museum. Don't come up and try to look in the fucking windows. Yeah. Basically is what they're saying. You did. You know, people do. Oh, definitely. Well, maybe not so much now. It's been about 60, almost 60 years since this happened. I was talking about this with a guy that I work with today. Uh, he's in his 20s and he had never heard of any of this. So okay, maybe a lot of people don't really, older people know about it still and people who, you know, true crime. But to be a lot fair, of young people don't know about it. To be it. fair, that guy might not even know World War One happened. That's true. Yeah. And if you went to school in Arizona... Civil yeah, War didn't might. happen. <laughs> what happened? Arizona, Arizona established as a state? That's it. <laughs> yeah. What is the Civil War? You mean the Northern War of Aggression? Yeah, I've heard of that. Oh, 
Yeah, basically, yeah, Arizona thinks that they fought in the side of the Confederacy. A lot of people here think that. So it's a little weird. Yikes. I, yeah. Of course, there was a lot of people in Iowa who thought that Iowa was on the side of the Confederacy. So You know what? I have been... I watched that pirate documentary on Netflix, and I watched... Mm. Uh, I started watching the Cuba one. Man, all the slave stuff in there, I don't know how any person could be like, yeah, the Confederacy, hell yeah. You know, it's... If you watch that, it's just like... Oh my God! Some of the darkest shit you can possibly see. Well, you got to remember, like a lot of that shit was was hidden away from you know, like everyday people who didn't like own plantations or you know had nothing to do with any of that stuff, and people who lived in the north really didn't know like the truth about it unless like basically they read into it or they were you know they oh they only knew what they were told but so I, think about in a hundred years what i was gonna say is think about in a hundred years what they'll say about like now like our time true but i'm saying people in modern times you know oh gotcha like oh, okay it's, i see what you mean they it's very clear they know what happened yeah people in modern times yeah definitely yeah, yeah. anyway sorry yeah the sad thing there's still that shit happening to this day it's just yeah. fucking over the internet now yeah but the armed group of individuals who referred to themselves as soldiers made up a medium-sized part of the ranks of the SLA or Sibonese Liberation Army, which was a far-left terrorist organization that claimed to be the vanguard against the current order. Uh, they were an anti-racist, anti-capitalist, pro-feminist movement, among many other causes, that wanted to... Unite all races, genders, and ages in their struggle against tyranny, eventually winning out and living in peace and harmony. Okay, so they have, you know, a pretty, you know, admirable goal, right? Um, yeah. I don't think taking people at gunpoint and laying down suppression fire at neighbors is yep. the best way to get your <laughs> message across, but what do I know? Yeah, it was kind of weird. So, like... If you really read into it 70, 60, 50 years ago, uh, all of the kind of homegrown terrorist was considered like left wing terrorist, kind of like, you know, coming out of the like communist revolutionary yeah. types. Yeah. Now it's kind of all like right wing terrorists, more of like the nationalist shit. But that also like sways back and forth from left to right, being like the more extreme. But obviously, extremist groups on both sides still exist to this day. Uh, back then, though, they were very active. I mean, this uh, is lots of bombings and yeah. right in the heart of the Cold War. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. And all of uh, all of the like, you know, civil rights movements, everything like that, uh, all of the everything trying to suppress and everything trying to like progress that kind of deal. So it was it, a very turbulent time, which is it's funny because there's a lot of people maybe not laying down suppression fire, but. Um, I've heard those exact words from a lot of people, which, you know, anti-racist, obviously pretty standard, um, pro-feminism, you know, women's rights, uh, you know, that not, that it should be pretty common. So I don't know about anti-capitalist. That's kind of a really complicated subject, but, but yeah, th it's funny. This is still going on. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's not so much what they stand for. 
it's their actions. Yeah. That yeah. It's how they want. So there's a lot of the, well, we talked about uh, Hoover and kind of like what he thought about anyone who wasn't, you know, like straight laced and, you know, well, yeah. of course he yeah. wore dresses and wigs and, you know, high heels, <laughs> fancy boy. But like basically the FBI, the CIA, they just followed around all of these groups. So this was one that was actually worth following around. Uh, these guys were assholes. Like I mentioned, the three of them made up a large part of the SLA. It's estimated they only ever had at most at one time, maybe 12 to 15 members. Oh, so, wow. Okay. <laughs> not a, not a, yeah, kind of uh, just a, just a few less than Scientology. There was, so. there was land parties bigger than this group. Yes, there are World of Warcraft parties out playing right yes, now yes. that were like yep. trumped the size of this yep. whole bigger raid group at their than, than this. Yes. Oh, definitely. Now, the group had gained much notoriety and infamy after the assassination of their first victim, though it was very localized. Marcus Foster who was the first ever African-American superintendent of a major school system, was shot and killed on November 6th, 1973, after he had exited from the Oakland school board meeting. This was along with his deputy, Marcus Blackburn. Now, the SLA murdered Foster because they claimed that he was a fascist after his proposal to have students in the Oakland school systems carry identification cards along with them. Uh, Blackburn, the deputy, would survive, though Foster would succumb to his wounds and pass away. Okay, you are not kidding. They are assholes. Oh, yeah. This was their first major act, too. They went out and killed a public figure. So they're... I mean, I, I know it doesn't necessarily have to do anything with race, but they killed a black guy, right? I I, mm -hmm. I get that. They're saying he's fascist because they want kids to have ID cards, which is pretty fucking insane. But, you know, what the funny thing is, every school system has ID cards now. Yeah. But it's more for, you know, well, they claim it's for bagging in and doing all this stuff. But, yeah, it's tracking. But <laughs> basically, it was kind of like making lists, that sort of thing. That's what they maybe were worried about. Oh, OK. All right. Yeah, I. Uh... I don't know. Just stupid. These guys are assholes. Symbiones basically is a word that they made up that means like symbiotic. It's kind of like groups living together and coming together in harmony. That's kind of what they were going for. So they made up that word for symbiosis. Like a symbiotic relationship. Yes, gotcha. exactly. Gotcha. Uh, but I'm going to be referring to them as SLA from now on. Okay. The SLA had believed that Foster's murder would actually secure the support of the African-American community and leftist groups throughout the country. Though, of course, this did not work. Yeah. And the SLA became ostracized for their radical beliefs and for the murder of a much-loved African-American leader in the community of Oakland. Also, this act would, of course, draw the attention of law enforcement and the FBI, which were now actively investigating the SLA and Foster's assassination. Basically, SLA wasn't even on you know anyone's radar before this. They were just a group of kind of ex-cons and college you know intellectuals that had come together here's the thing like these guys are stupid this is what i would take out of this okay so you're not that far out of the civil rights movements right and you have yep. an african-american guy 
who is the superintendent of the school system, right? I can't imagine at the time there was that many African-American people in that position, right? And then they go ahead and just kill them. And how are they going to think the African-American community is going to be like, oh, we love these people. Like, what are they thinking? So here's the thing. I read this in, I read a, a bunch of different articles kind of about the SLA and kind of skimmed through. And some of the things I read about the Foster murder was that it's kind of like how, um, how do I put this? So Martin Luther King. So he was all for the nonviolence. He was all for kind of like working through the system to kind of get laws changed, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. The people who were pro-violence really didn't like Martin Luther King. That was a situation with the SLA and Foster. They kind of looked at Foster as maybe they were a little bit jealous of the progress that he was making. Maybe they were, you know, didn't like the way that he was going about things, like working from the inside, that kind of situation. They're, even though maybe they really should have been together, or the thing is, this Foster guy probably wouldn't have stepped foot in one of their meetings. They were also made up of mostly crazy people. Kind yeah. of deal too. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's not hard to see. We'll we'll keep talking about them, and you'll be like, "Wow, these people are fucking nuts." But <laughs> basically, right. a bunch of academics who wanted to play soldiers to try to get their you know their beliefs through, which they could have done a lot more. You know, writing books and doing the regular academic stuff. So hey, you know who else was uh, an academic who wanted to be a soldier? Uh who? <laughs> Heinrich Himmler. Man, come on, let's go. <laughs> Maybe oh, okay. that's their I was aspiration. Say, there's, a, there's a lot of people. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> who are kind of doing that shit. But. He's kind of, um, yeah. Everybody knows him. He's uh, one of the biggest assholes in history. Yeah, basically, most of the generals that we've had, you could also kind of call them mix, except for like the cowboy style generals. But yeah, True. moving on. So two months later, on January 10th, 1974, two of the founding members of the SLA. Russell Little and Joseph Romero would be arrested by police after they were searched during a traffic stop. Later, their rented home that had actually served as a safe house for the group in Concord, California, would be searched. They searched it even though the members of the group, while fleeing, had attempted to burn the safe house to the ground. Even though it was like severely damaged, enough SLA materials and propaganda remained behind for the police to find, and authorities would charge them with the murder of Marcus Foster. The remaining group of members, after coming out of hiding, had decided really the best course of action was to take a high-profile prisoner in order to barter for and secure the release of the two captured SLA members, uh, Little and Romero. It's kind of amazing they even found the murderers in the 70s out of how terrible the fucking oh, yeah. police work was. Literally, on a California driver's license back then, all you had to do was take an eraser, erase your name off of your license, and write down a new one. And that was your name now. It's like literally, crazy. Yeah. Literally, unless you um, basically took a picture of yourself killing the person... Made sure your ID and home address were sitting next to the body. They probably weren't going to find you in the 70s. That's why there are so many goddamn murderers. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's just like they found these guys. So clearly they left a trail. Yeah, the thing is, so really, I mean, 
you know, they had found some suspicious stuff inside their vehicles. It wasn't exactly clear if these guys had killed uh, Foster, but what was clear was they were in the SLA. So mm. that's why they were charged with the murder. Gotcha. It's, the situation wasn't, we have all this evidence that they killed this guy. It was, we have evidence that these people are in this group. So they're guilty by association, basically, which happened a lot back then. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Before really good evidence, like if you were in the area, you could spend like 20 years in prison before DNA would eventually set all these people free, hopefully, right. or they mostly died in prison. So yeah, probably the latter. Yeah, most likely. Now, speaking <laughs> speaking of uh, true crime, any fans out there of crime and sports and small town murder will know that back in the day, if you were mentioned in the newspaper, they would not only announce your full name, but also your full address. And it just so happened that Stephen Weed and Patricia Hearst's engagement and upcoming nuptials had been announced in the San Francisco Chronicle, which also happened to be owned by the Hearst family. And of course, the Hearst family name still meant wealth and success at the time, so they got a pretty decent little spread there. Uh, this made Patty an easy target for the organization. This was just a few short months before the home invasion that had seen Patty taken hostage by the SLA in her Berkeley townhome. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm kind of glad they changed that. Um, <laughs> that it doesn't yeah, put your exactly. address in there. Yeah, it's it, if you listen to Crime and Sports when they do an episode from like back in like the 60s, 70s, they always mention how the newspaper would say your full name and your address. Yeah, uh, they would always mention it, not really even thinking that it might put someone in danger. Like if you won the lottery back then, they would give your address. Ooh, man, yikes! That kind of shit. Yeah, exactly. Yikes. Though I don't know when the lottery became they even had it back then. But a for instance. If you won the lottery, they would give everyone your address. <laughs> now, in the aftermath of the kidnapping, on the 5th of February, that very next day, reporters would flock to Hillsborough, California, to the Hearst family home for interviews. Uh, while on February 6th, the day after that, the SLA, under the control of Donald DeFries, sent a letter to a Berkeley radio station claiming that Patty was still alive and that she was being held as a prisoner of war, though no official ransom demands were made at first in this you know, first communique, as they would call it. Later, on February 12th, a proof-of-life recording would be provided to that very same radio station. I, uh, Phil, the people and their names in this are fucking ridiculous. Donald DeFreeze, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me, dude? Yeah, he's got uh, he's got a pretty cool name. I love that, I, uh, honestly, our, I love it, <laughs> Mister DeFreeze. Yeah, I I love it. I honestly, if it was like him and Mister Freeze were a gay couple in the Batman comic books, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Uh, I mean. Right away, it was all pretty quick. Um, this was obviously with the Hearst family name and them kind of, you know, splashing it all over the media. This became really big news, trying to get Patty back, basically. Yeah, uh, I would imagine so, yeah. Yeah. Now, initially, they would demand, of course, the immediate release of Russell Little and Joseph Romero, though authorities turned them down flat. This forced the group to kind of come up with some other demands. They would ask that the Hearst family donate $70 worth of food 
for every person in Southern California and also throughout the country, which would have been an estimated $400 million donation at the time. I mean, $70 worth of food in the 70s. God damn, they'll probably buy you enough food for six months. <laughs> you could literally fill up the back of a station wet yeah. with $70 worth of food back in the 70s. You can maybe buy out the whole fucking, you could maybe buy a fucking, like one of those little stands at a market. Just give them $70, they'd give you everything. So if they're immediately asking for the release of these guys, I'm assuming it's very obvious who took her. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, well, so during that communique, they took full credit for everything. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. This is the FLA and we're little bitches. You better release them. <laughs> you think that's how Donald DeFreeze sounds? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So the Hearst family initially went along with these demands. They announced that they would develop a foundation called People in Need. And on February 19th, uh, they started out with a $2 million donation, claiming that with the $2 million, they could feed 100,000 people in the area. The first giveaway of food was three days later, though it was a total fucking disaster as people in need organization had no organization behind it. It was basically just the handing out of food to poor people. So you can imagine how badly that's going to go. Yeah. This yeah. nearly ended in a riot, though later donation giveaways would go much more smoothly. Uh, there was a total of five donations. They donated thousands of dollars worth of food. Uh, Donald DeFreeze, though, would denounce the $2 million donation, claiming that it wasn't nearly enough. Uh, as much as he thought that they should be able to afford, he would call for an additional $6 million to be spent. Uh, this caused Patty's father to publicly claim that it was too much for the family and said that no more donations would be made until Patty was first released. Then he would obviously give the money away to the poor, but DeFreeze didn't even want to start negotiations until an additional $6 million were spent. All the while, though, Randolph Hearst was secretly speaking with incarcerated men who were known associates of the SLA. He would be urging them to push for the opening of those negotiations. Okay, so they have Patty and Stephen Weed, right? Or is it just Patty? Just Patty. Stephen okay. Weed was left tied up and the shit kicked out of him. Okay. The thing is, though, the Hearst family doesn't give a fuck about him. Yeah, I was going to say. They never liked him in the first place. He's the poor guy that their that their daughter was fucking, basically. That's I mean, she was gonna marry him, but apparently they never really liked him, is the thing. He's a really big Andy Warhol fan, probably. Um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, he's uh he follows the stones around, maybe. <laughs> yeah, they don't like him for that. Were they a thing yeah, they were a thing in the Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, they yeah. They were uh they were they weren't that far after the Beatles, I know that. Um Shit, they were old men by then. <laughs> yeah, Keith Richards should have been dead in 1974. Um, yeah. But yeah, okay, so clearly Donald DeFreeze, still an asshole a little bit. God, I didn't, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of money to be giving away. Obviously, there's a lot of rich people, but I guess he wouldn't have any leverage over them, just them because they have Patty. You got to imagine, too, I mean, these people are wealthy, but $2 million, $6 million back then, 
was a shit ton of money. And a lot of that money was tied up in the family corporation, you know, with other members of the family. So it's kind of hard for him. Like, you got to remember, this is all happening within two weeks that he gathered up $2 million to donate. So basically, he probably had to sell some shit. He probably had to beg his family for it, the corporation for it. I don't even I'm not even sure if he was a member of the board. I do know at that time he was running a few newspapers for the family. That's about it. Like I, could see, like I said before, he wasn't a central figure in the family. I could see like the the grandfather, the rich one, right? Just being like, yeah. can't you just let her die? I mean, you can always make a new one. I mean, we <laughs> we don't want to oh, be you've going already... ahead and giving away this money. You can just make a new one. Goddamn Randolph, you got yeah. four other daughters. Yeah. Pick a different favorite. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine that. How many balls you got? There's millions <laughs> of kids in them testicles. Go make a new one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so he um he died in the 50s. But I don't know. From what I've heard about William Randolph, I'm not I'm not exactly sure if he was the um, you know, quite like JP Morgan in that sense. But yeah, I can imagine him not wanting to give away a dollar. No one who's ever made a billion dollars has to give away a single cent. No, so. absolutely fucking not. Not unless it gives them fucking clout or tax write-offs. So. Very true. Yep. Now, California governor at the time, Ronald Reagan, who at first claimed that no one would even think about coming out to accept free groceries from this organization, would go on to criticize the people that had accepted the free food, claiming that they were contributing to the problem. Yep, that sounds like Ronald Reagan. Yeah. They should be waiting for it to trickle down. Yeah. <laughs> you give it to me first, and then when I'm shitted out, you can eat my turds when it comes yeah. out finally. You give it to me, and then when the nickels and dimes fall out of my pocket, that's when they'll hit the, the streets. Be like, so. have you ever met my wife? She's blown half of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think I got governorship? Yeah. So I shouldn't say that. He was the announcer for for some time. So, well, now, Nan- well <laughs> Nancy was known for being a throw go Phil. So don't completely that's throw true. that out. That's true. Yeah. Now, while all of this was going on, Patricia, of course, was living under horrendous conditions with the captivity of the SLA in their headquarters, which is basically just kind of an apartment. She was confined to a small closet, which said not even large enough for her to lay down flat. Uh, After her arrest, Patricia Hearst would claim that she had underwent physical and psychological abuse from her captors, being told that her family and the FBI had just completely given up on her and that she was being left for dead which was the reason that they gave for why her father wouldn't make a larger donation. So they're basically feeding her propaganda. They're telling her, you know, everyone's forgotten about you. They're just, they don't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. Also, you know, horrible physical, sexual, psychological abuse the entire time that she was being held captive before she kind of turned side. Let's just say. Yeah. I, I was kind of waiting for, the sexual abuse aspect of it to kind of fall. And clearly, as you just alluded to it, it they are doing that to her. Yeah. So it kind of, it, the, the story changed a little bit over the years. So right off the bat, she claimed that there, 
like right after she was arrested, she claimed there wasn't any sexual abuse. Then kind of when time had gone on a little bit. Um, also, some female members of the group that had been there at the time also claimed that it didn't happen. Uh, she would later come out and say that it did happen uh, while blindfolded in that closet. Patricia would say that she was subjugated, like I mentioned, physical sexual abuse. This done by Donald Freeze and other male members of the group. And that she was forced to listen to SLA's propaganda, either from recordings or having it read to her while she was in that closet. Uh, she was also forced to produce recordings of her own. These recordings were of her denouncing her parents and the United States and, you know, all of these kind of all the things that she was meant to kind of be the, the standard for. She was, you know, denouncing them. Yeah, I I don't know. It, for, d- just from the sounds of this group, the sexual abuse does not shock me. I'll just say that. Um, and if she didn't say it till later, I would assume that means that she's gotten deprogrammed from the Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, yeah. The moment that she was arrested, they basically started trying to, like, bring her back. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, right, right when they got her, right when they got her back. Obviously, you know... She spent some time in a hospital, also went to jail. Uh, She was reunited with her family. That's for the end of the episode. But yeah, uh, a lot of deprogramming. And also, when you're on trial for the crimes that she committed, you also want to say, you know, obviously brainwashed. You know, I was programmed to do all this stuff, too. So you got to think about that, too. Very true. Very true. Now, on April 3rd, a tape is sent to KSAN radio station where Patricia Hurst, over a recording, claimed that she now sided with the, ideolo- with the ideology of her captors and had pledged her allegiance to the Sibonese Liberation Army, renaming herself Tanya, which was a common act among SLA members. Uh, when asked about their daughter's statements, Patty's parents would denounce what she had said, claiming that she must have been brainwashed by the terrorist organization. This was the fifth audio recording to be presented to the radio stations. Uh, This had gone on for nearly two months now uh, since Patricia's kidnapping. So February to April, basically. Okay. Um, Are you going to go into more of this or what do you think this is the start of Stockholm Syndrome? Well, definitely they're forcing her to, you know, make statements, read off these things. Like she claims that she had done quite a few recordings. So this might be like the best one. She might actually be starting to come around at this point is what some people are thinking. So she is an art history major. (laughs) Keep that in mind, guys. Yeah. I don't know if that makes you better or worse at reading, but probably better. You got to, you're not just looking at pretty pictures. You got to read some stuff. So I did you, take two. I did take an art history class when I was at community college. So you know that what? One was it, fun. it might make you a communist uh, dictator, <laughs> ship uh, wannabe. I guess so. I don't know. Yeah, this was out in uh, rural western Iowa. So not too many communists out there. Mostly, hey. uh, it was during the Bush years too. So never say never. <laughs> On April fifteenth. Two weeks after Patty slash Tanya's announced allegiance to the SLA, she and a small detachment of her comrades were filmed by security cameras committing armed robbery at the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco, California. The group, which consisted of Patricia Hurst, DeFreeze, Patricia Solistic, 
Nancy Perry, and Camilla Hall held up tellers and patrons of the bank, making their escape with an estimated $10,000 in cash. Now, there are pictures of Hearst from the security cameras holding a rifle pointed at the patrons and the tellers. This would hit the media by storm. Everyone was debating whether or not she had actually joined the terrorist group or was perhaps being held hostage by members of the group at the time. Also, whether or not her bullets had, whether or not the gun she was holding had any bullets in it. So I have that actually pictured below. That's her in a wig. Okay, first off, kind of like the jacket. I think it's kind of sweet. The gun doesn't even look real. Um, but, I mean, she looks like a henchman in a Bond movie. But, uh, yeah. fuck, I, I, <laughs> right? Doesn't she? A um, lot of vagina. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of vagina holding up a bank there. Um, it, it's funny you mentioned the coat and the gun, because if you scroll down to the next page, that's in the FBI museum. Is it? Okay. No, yes. that's what I was saying. The coat's kind of cool. I got to say, I don't know if this is like a far left liberation jacket. Like a standard issue, but um, I when I first saw the gun, I, I thought it was a fucking harpoon gun, but I realize <laughs> now I don't know rifle of some kind, right? Yeah, it's so it's uh I don't know what kind of gun it is. Uh, it's basically imagine that it doesn't have a pistol, that it kind of has more of a stock on it, and maybe like a a handle or a banana clip on bottom, and then you'll kind of see more of like the assault rifle kind of aspect to it so yeah that's basically an assault rifle like bare bones though it looks like a fidel castro revolution type gun is what i if you saw like a movie about fidel castro's revolution i feel like this would be a movie prop that's what it reminds me of chavez special yeah yeah definitely yeah, yeah. So after the robbery, audio tapes of Patty would be released where she had claimed that she was a willing participant in the robbery and that any notions that she was still being held against her will or that she had been brainwashed were completely false. Also stating that none of her new comrades had pointed a gun at her back while she was holding up the hibernate. So she's claiming that like she's there of her own free will and she's a full-fledged member, you know, tits and all. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, do you think she would have said this to get better treatment? Oh, that's part of the, the Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, I definitely think that um, maybe trying to get better treatment at first, and then kind of like once that ball starts rolling, once the snowball rolls down the hill, it just gets bigger and bigger until you're very deep into it. Okay, that's what I was going to say. Maybe she's like, oh, I'll join your group so I don't have to get sexually assaulted and live in a fucking closet. Yeah, just get me out of this closet and I will fucking rob a bank with you. I don't give a fuck. One of those things. Yeah. yeah. Also, they were claiming that like like later on, people would look back at this and claim that it wasn't fake. Like her relationship with one of the terrorists, this guy named Cujo, who I'll mention <laughs> later on. They were claiming that like maybe she had a real relationship with him, kind of like developed out of duress. So Phil. Stop it with these goddamn names, man. Please. I can't take it anymore. Fucking His, so they, okay, so they all had code names. His code name, just like her code name is like Tanaya or Tanya. That it's it's spelled like Tanaya, said like Tanya. But hers is that. His is Cujo. 
Like DeFreeze has one. DeFreeze is his real name, but he has a code name too. So his name is like Chick or something like that. C-H-I-N-Q-U-E. Did they name him Cujo because he has such a severe underbite or what? I don't. Possibly. <laughs> anyway, you laugh. You laugh at his real name too. So I bet I. I bet I so. will. <laughs> when I say, "Oh, his name, blah blah blah," you'll be like, "That must be Cujo." Like, yeah. yeah. Actually, there's a lot of chicks in this organization. A lot of the Robin is done by women. I so They I, are a very. They're a very. You know. Very progressive. Uh, very progressive, you know, kind of actually if if one form nowadays, it's what you would think it might be, you know, you know, they don't they don't care about race, age, sex, gender. They don't give a fuck. So everyone works kind of situation. Absolutely. You know, if you eat, you work kind of deal, I guess. So now Patty also during her uh, recording that she would give would call her family pig hearse. And she instead of Stephen Weed her fiance that he was an ageist and a sexist pig. Poor Steven, man. He just, you know how long he pretended to like art for just to get laid. And you know how many <laughs> fucking Warhol paintings he had to look at just to impress this chick. And now she's calling him a sexist pig. Jesus oh, definitely. Christ. So many poetry reading. Yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. 1970s Berkeley. Good God. No but way. Let's yeah, be let's it. be completely fair though. His name's Steve Weed, right? You know how many yeah. hippie chicks are sucking and fucking him? Just for that. So Oh yeah, just from his name thinking that he's yeah. got the hook up. Yes, yeah. absolutely. After the robbery, the FBI would put out wanted posters featuring all of the members who had been seen robbing the Hibernia Bank. Though Patty Hurst, who was on the poster, would be placed on the poster as a quote material witness. Now this poster would include an explanation at the bottom of how Patty Hearst had been abducted from her Berkeley apartment two months earlier in February. And I have that below also. So I got two things to say. First off, Mr. DeFreeze looks really out of, um, one is not like the other. I'll say that. And here's the other thing. Um, so Patricia, Saltisfic, right? They look like they literally found some sort of gypsy caravan in Romania and then asked her if she wanted to join an American liberation movement gang. That's literally what she looks like to me. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. And then Camilla Hall honestly looks like she is one of the members of Hall and Oates. I, I don't know if she's Hall or Oates, but she's one or the other. Yeah, so it's weird. Well, we we, we kind of said they didn't care about like age or race or anything like that. She definitely, she's in her mid thirties. She is definitely like you know has a mortgage and sees a doctor on a yearly basis. Age and she's running around with all these twenty somethings in this terrorist group. You so actually, what? DeFreeze is older than she is. I just noticed that. Uh, Nineteen forty three is when he was born. She was born in forty five. Uh, that. Nancy Ling Perry, she's kind of got a like that model look to her. Maybe twenty years in the future, she could have been a model. I she looks like she's right off of a cool cigarette ad. Yes. Oh yeah, very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. So so basically, I've mentioned I showed a lot of pictures to Cody. I'm actually gonna jump back on Instagram and do the story thing again, where I'm 
pictures on Instagram so that you guys can see all of these. So you yeah. know what the fuck we're talking yeah. about. So yeah. I feel I haven't really done pictures in a while, but I think it's needed for this one. Absolutely. Now, after the robberies, Patricia was now seen as a full fledged member of the group, even allowed to be alone in the car as two of her comrades, Emily Harris and husband Bill Harris, shoplifted from a sporting goods store the next month on May 16th. This was when the clerk of the store noticed that the pair had stolen some stuff and chased husband Bill outside, where he tackled him to the ground. Uh, His wife, Emily, was actually trying to help her husband fight back against the clerk. But he had Bill on the ground, apprehended pretty much. And I guess the cops were on their way. Someone had called the cops who had seen this. So it was all kind of coming together that maybe she could have gotten rescued. Here's the thing. The store clerk was probably an off-season Oakland Raiders linebacker. And this (laughs) guy fucked with the wrong dude. Oh, definitely. Was... Ooh, were the Raiders in Oakland at the time? Because I know they did. They were in L.A. They moved back and forth. No, I think they were Oakland. Yeah, it was Oakland. It was John Madden time in the uh, this part of the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah, they moved back to L.A. for a little bit, then back to Oakland. So. This was now, this, this was pretty close to like where the Raiders players could have probably uh, been in San Quentin, dude. Like, uh, they were questionable. <laughs> Some of the Raiders players may have been in this group for all we know. True, very <laughs> so. true. They were a pretty rough crowd back then. Very true. Now, this event, uh, even though we kind of mentioned like she could have gotten away here, it would be very damning for Patty during her trial as the Harrises had left not only her alone in the car, but also the keys in the ignition. This would give her ample opportunity to escape or possibly do nothing and wait for the police to come and arrest her captors. However, that's not what she did. What Patty did was she pulled one of the machine guns out of the car and fired 27 30 caliber bullets into the storefront. This would allow the pair to escape back to the car, get in and get the fuck out of there. Now, luckily for Patty, no one was injured when she let loose the volley of bullets. That is hella lucky. Like shooting that many goddamn bullets into a store. Yeah, that's pretty lucky. Apparently, she just... Like aim, like picked it up, put it out the window, and started firing, kind of to either like suppression fire that sort that same sort of thing, or just just to distract the guy. Having all those bullets come, you're gonna get the fuck off of them. So, yeah, I imagine it, it was really it's really damning to your case though when yeah. you definitely could have gotten away here and you didn't. So I imagine this is what it was like um, for Dick. Cheney's friend when they were hunting together. <laughs> <laughs> he saw movement just started spraying over in that direction. Yeah, anytime Dick Cheney has a gun in his hand, probably all of his friends now, just immediately. I don't know, is he... Well, I mean, if whatever you count having a fake heart. But Yeah, he's... He, yeah, I don't know. He's alive. That should be on Fear Factor. Like, the contestants have to go hunting with Dick Cheney. <laughs> Make make one little snarky comment and he just blasts you right in the yeah. face with birdshot. You're gonna and get, then you have to go on the news and apologize. You're going to get 27 fucking 30 caliber bullets uh, <laughs> in your direction. Fire in your direction. Yeah. You better be good at dancing. <laughs> now, that was May 16th. 
The next day, on May 17th, the police would actually catch up with six other members of the SLA. These six members would be Donald DeFries, Willie Wolf, Patricia Sullitz, Camilla Hall, Angela Atwood, and Nancy Perry, who had a very public exchange of bullets with the police. That is until the police would use gas canisters on the hideout to try to force the terrorists out of the building. This, though, ignited the building, killing all six members of the group. In June, Patty would actually put an audio tape together featuring a eulogy for the deceased members, also proclaiming her love for Willie Wolf, codenamed Cujo. When I heard Willie Wolf, I'm like, this has got to be fucking Cujo. Oh, definitely. Was, okay, so Cujo is a big book by Stephen King. The dog, yeah. The big ass dog. Was that book out at this time, do you think? Uh, He wouldn't have been active at this point. He's not that old. He's pretty fucking old, man. I don't know. So I just checked. It looks like it's 19, or I'm sorry, 1981. So maybe old Steven copied this guy. Possibly. Actually, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I wonder any reference to Cujo coming up before uh, before this or, you know, after. Maybe where they got it from. It but might... it is funny. His name's Willie Wolf. Name, codename is Cujo. Yeah. So. Yeah, I got to say, a lot of silly names in this uh, in this episode, <laughs> Phil. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it. maybe the SLA is a little fun group. You know, they all have fun code names and... You know, they're out uh, gallivanting around and shit. Maybe. So obviously committing horrible crimes. But Absolutely. And I think we need code names now. Anyway, continue on. here. Oh, yeah, definitely. So now during the shootout and the fire that killed all of those members, Randolph and Karen Hurst were actually watching it on television in their hotel just outside of Disneyland in horror as they didn't know if their daughter was actually in that house or not. So they had no idea that she was actually separate from this group with Bill and Emily Harris. Like, luckily, you know. Yeah. Every single member of this group died. So after the death of the six members, Patty would be sent out of California, crisscrossing the country, evading the FBI and authorities, spending time on a farm in Pennsylvania with other members of the SLA for a pretty extended period of time. Now, for the next year, the group would continue to operate with Bill Harris now taking the reins of the operation after DeFreeze's death. He would claim that the SLA had actually joined up with a larger group known as the New World Liberation Front. They were committing bombings across the country, especially Northern California at this time, some of which it is believed that Patty may have had a hand in. Uh, throughout this time, Patty... Uh, had had really ample opportunity to escape. Uh, Once, she was even rescued while hiking by park rangers, even for a little bit being treated in a hospital. And she still went back. Yep, she was still stuck with them, still didn't say who she was. At any moment in the hospital, she could have said, Patty Hurst, you know, call the sheriff, anything. Get these fucking people away from me, basically. Help me. I gotta say, your picture here, she does look kind of hot. I got to say that I love the flag that looks like it was stolen from the bad guy from G.I. Joe. I can't think yes. of his name right now. King Cobra? Is that his name? King Cobra? Yes. So their flag is actually a seven-headed cobra. Seven-headed cobra? 
Yes, that is their their the mascot on their flag is the seven headed serpent. So okay. it's pretty fucking sweet. Yeah, is, is isn't no that's close to the hail Hydra thing, right? From Captain America. <laughs> yeah, pretty much from uh, yeah, yeah. from all of the comic book. Yeah. Okay. From Marvel, right. I see. Uh, Steve- yeah, she. I will also have this picture. She does look like a pretty bad bitch holding that rifle. Yeah. Yeah. So she's got the revolutionist fucking bray on. Yeah. <laughs> she looks good. On September 18th, 1975, after 19 months, Damn. the ordeal was finally over with Patty being arrested along with Bill Harris, the leader, his wife, Emily, and pretty new member, Wendy Yoshimira. Uh, when they actually ask Patty what her occupation is after her arrest, she proclaims that she is an urban gorilla. So she was living it, even okay. after her arrest. Not Now, so the audience knows, not gorilla like King Kong. Gorilla no, like... gorilla like warrior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's pretty cringe, I can't lie. But <laughs> she... <laughs> I don't know. I'm having trouble. Like, obviously, we're going to talk about it at the end, but you're really diluting the waters here, Phil, and I can't wrap my brain around it yet. Yeah. Uh, so she was living. She was living this life for nearly two years. Uh, it. She was well deep in all of it. Uh, I will also say that uh, "gorilla," the word, so the Spanish word for war is "guerra." And gorilla is warrior in Spanish. That's where it comes from. So, gotcha. Okay, learn yeah. something also, new every day, kids. Yeah, the whole guerrilla warfare thing also comes from Spain too. So, now during her trial, the famous lawyer F. Lee Bailey would actually represent her. He had represented other infamous individuals, including Albert DeSalvo, also known as the Boston Strangler, and Sam Shepard who had been convicted of murdering his pregnant wife back in 1954, though he would be exonerated in 1966. Bailey would argue that Hearst had been brainwashed, suffering until she finally relented, joining the terrorist organization under extreme duress. Also, he claimed that some of the pictures showed uh, from the bank robberies actually had guns pointing at Patty during that Hibernia robbery. Uh, she was actually being instructed, according to her, to act as if she was enthused and willing whenever she had her picture taken. That was pretty crazy. They got this guy, although, you know, uh, Boston Strangler, very famous case. I almost think, do not quote me, but I almost think this guy would eventually go on to represent John Wayne Gacy, too, um, or another oh. serial killer, one of them. I know he did another serial killer. I can't remember if it was Gacy or somebody else. Yeah, he's a very good lawyer, at least at the time. He's probably going to twist the facts a little bit. I mean, if you're representing a serial killer, it's you're going to have to get a little creative with <laughs> yeah, trying to shift the blame around, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Well, if the, the thing is, this is the lawyer that the Hearst family got. So they had the money to get anyone on earth to be their lawyer. And they picked this guy because he's good. So, he's very good. Yeah, he got I mean, it was him like in 1966, the Sam Shepard guy. He was already in prison for like, I think, 10 or 11 years, something like that. And he had gotten exonerated. So it's one of those deals where it's like, well, maybe he can get Patty off to that kind of right, situation. Right. 
I'll yeah. be curious to hear what the uh, what he does. Yeah. So I will say too, um, after her capture, I did do like some of the articles I read said that uh, she was in a like a sorry state. She looked to be extremely malnourished and also mentally traumatized. One of the articles I read said that she was between 80 and 100 pounds at the time that they captured her. Uh, Another one mentioned that like someone who examined her claimed that she had fallen from having 130 IQ down to about 110. So kind of like, you know, mentally traumatized they were going. I mean, that is known to happen when you join a liberation group. Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean... (laughs) Like, just the trauma of being in that closet for two months probably caused some crazy damage, too. All of the arguments that were put forward, though, didn't really matter. That was because in May of 1976, the jury didn't buy any of the brainwashing, any of the anything that the defense put up. They sentenced Patty, or they found Patty guilty, and she would be eventually sentenced to seven years in prison, though she would only spend about 22 months total as a prisoner, uh, less than two years. Basically, she spent a lot of it also kind of, you know, out at court, um, having her case reheard. In 1979, though, Jimmy Carter would commute her sentence, allowing her to finally go home. This was five years after the initial kidnapping. You know, to be fair, okay, if she was in basically kidnapped and held against her will for two years. She's doing that again in prison, so maybe she doesn't really care. But uh, once again, poor Jimmy Carter coming to the rescue. Um, the <laughs> man who just, you know, he's too nice, and they get, he just got beat down. But I, I guess he, he was nice. He helped her out. Down below, I have a picture of Patty Hearst uh, being brought to the court. Uh, basically, she's looked pretty good. Uh, in this picture. It's nice Burt she, Reynolds she's, is there with him. Yeah, exactly. He's got that Tom <laughs> Selleck mustache. Tom right Selleck, yeah. To him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is also the Burt Reynolds mustache. It's the big mustache, the, the 70s style. Yeah. So yeah. the porn stash, if you will. This was taken, obviously, during her trial, 1976. So maybe she had put on a little bit of weight by then. But she's looking, you know, like a lot better, I guess, than they kind yeah. of described her right after her arrest. So... It looks like she's a petite woman. Yes. So I don't know what her normal weight is, but anybody, unless you're like four foot tall, 80 to 100 pounds is like... Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty pretty gaunt like, and malnourished. Yeah. It's yeah. like deathly sick. Yeah. I actually, I did notice, I don't know if that's because it's a black and white picture, but her cheekbones do look pretty uh, protruding. Yeah. So sunken maybe she in. is a little bit more gaunt than I thought she was. Yeah. But... After her release, Patty would denounce the movement that she had been involved in. She would marry her former bodyguard, Bernard Lee Shaw. Uh, She was married up until his death in 2013. With Bernard, she would have two children. Uh, After her release from prison, she would actually start kind of like a on-again, off-again acting career, appearing in multiple movies. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. The most famous one I saw was Cry Baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that shit. Wait, yeah, was she crybaby? Uh, fucking the pirate guy. What's his name? Yeah, it's um Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Yeah, that's the guy. Was she <laughs> of the, shitty bed fame? Was she the heartthrob? Ooh, no. I don't know. I would have to look. I all, all that I saw was she was in the movie. I don't know if she had like 
So I I have a feeling I know which character she is, but we'll look uh we'll look after the show. Yeah, it's not important. She had an acting career. She was in Yeah. Yeah. So, if this had happened today, obviously Patton's actions would be well explained as an obvious case of Stockholm syndrome. Uh like I mentioned though, Stockholm syndrome still not in the DSM-5. It's more of a it's it's not something you can quite get away like legally arguing, but it is kind of well known that it's a thing. Yeah. Back then though, they really it was a like are you with us or are you against us type situation. They kind of felt like they were against her, even like the court. Apparently, whenever the defense was kind of having their arguments, the judge really didn't even pay attention to them, didn't really care kind of deal. It was almost like everything was set in motion that like this is all you know going to happen. Good deal. I mean, it's it's no secret mental health things in the 70s and before that were pretty fucking bad. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean... Lobotomies were still going on, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, electroshock therapy, lobotomies. Coming out, even if they weren't doing lobotomies anymore, they were coming out of that time. So it's... God, they barely had... They didn't have any instruments, really, to kind of get a good picture of the brain. You know, like, they had really no idea what was going on. No, absolutely not. So after kind of she's, you know... Out of prison, 1979, from Jimmy Carter. Actually, in the 90s, Slick Will, <laughs> Slick Willie, Bill Clinton, would give her a full pardon. Uh, kind of lending to the idea that money talks, bullshit walks, and that the Hearst family name and fortune had gotten her out of prison and a full pardon. Very cool of old jazz boy Bill Clinton there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's it's kind of convenient, too, that it was about 20 years after. So kind of a whole generation goes before they kind of slip it in. So it's not if it was during the 80s, it would still be big news. Yeah. But, you know, kind of under the radar. Right. Just like um, they what did they do? They pardoned the Russian czars 100 years after they were killed. So, um, yeah, they kind of just slip it under the radar sometimes. We don't want to have this over our heads anymore. Right. So, right there you man. go. Pardon. Right. Or they, or how they get DNA evidence of who was executed like 30 years earlier. Yeah. They're like, oh, full pardon there. Yeah. Washed our hands of it. It's all good now. Ooh, that is <laughs> off my, that is off my conscience right now. <laughs> Definitely. So the Hearst family today, their fortune is estimated to be around $21 billion, though this is split among William Randolph Hearst's many descendants. Uh, Even though newspapers are pretty much dead, Hearst communication is still very much a thing. Uh, Nearly half of the corporation's revenue actually comes from a 20% share in ESPN, with the remaining 80% belonging to Disney, of course. ESPN is valued at $50 billion. They have an annual revenue of $4 billion. So if you think about 20% of that billion is kind of like a big part of the Hearst Corporation's money. So when when the Hearst Corporation still had power, they bought a good share of ESPN, and they're living off of that pretty much. Yeah, $4 billion a year? I, I don't know about you, um, I could probably sustain myself off of that. It'd be, it'd be rough, but, but, uh, okay. So I'd, fi- I'd figure it out. Yeah. 
you might have to cut back on the you know buying fresh potatoes and stuff like that. Um, so, okay, this I'll be curious what your th- okay. You tell me yours first, and then I'm going to spitball my idea off of you about what you feel about Patty. Okay, I will say. So I did. Re- I, I have the benefit of doing a lot of other reading, kind of a people think. There's people who are against her who kind of believe that even before her kidnapping, she was kind of going against her family. Really, though, I mean, that's kind of a rebellious rich girl thing to kind of, you know, she was going to marry a pauper. Maybe you know, she lived in a normal apartment, went to a public school, that kind of situation. They kind of play that out as she was heading towards extremism. It was going to happen, you know, like it wasn't the brainwashing. She she was going to want to do it anyway. Um, there's some people who kind of like at the time thought like that. The thing is, I definitely can understand just wanting to get out of that fucking closet, just wanting to be treated better, that sort of situation. I can understand all of that. But also, too, you know, one thing leads to another. It snowballs. And all of a sudden you're, you know, all you wanted to do was, you know, get out of the, that closet. And now you're robbing a fucking bank. You know, that sort of situation. And you're too afraid to escape even when you have the chance. So maybe she was even too afraid to live without these people. One of those deals were just conditioned. So that's why she fired the gun to get them back to her. That sort of thing. Yeah, that that was what I was going to say. What if she already belonged to this group and then set up the kidnapping because she knew of her, I guess, status and how much money her dad had or grandpa had and her family had. But then, like you said, I don't, this seems like a stretch, but yeah, I, I do think, especially if there was sexual abuse, um, I could definitely see, it seems like Stockholm syndrome. There is a, isn't there usually a lot of cases of like physical, mental and sexual abuse that, it usually happens to the people, right? Well, one of the big things about the Stockholm syndrome kind of, it's not so much really thought of like in the short term, it's the long term now. So it's like with abusive families, like years and years of abuse caused this sort of thing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it can happen in the short term too, but really what we think of it more now is kind of, you know, like siding with the abusive person in the family, that sort of I mean, it's it's interesting because if you think about it on a smaller scale, and I don't think this is technically Stockholm Syndrome, but let's say you have a couple, right? Let's just say you have a, a girl and a boy. Boy abuses girl, right? The girl becomes convinced that that's just their life now. Yeah. He, one day he'll stop, right? Like one day he'll stop. Or I deserve to be treated this like it becomes like this weird cycle that's very hard for people to break. It can go the other way too, obviously. But in an abuse, in a short-term abusive relationship, the one person starts believing that they'll change. They there's something. Well, you know what I'm saying. Like they get yeah. can like conditioned to accept that's the reality now. Or they might show their victim like just a small act of kindness that kind of like makes something like, oh, they're really a good person. Even though 99% of the time 
fucking asshole. This one little thing they're clinging to, you know, every once in a while, you know, they're nice. Basically, that sort of thing. So so I don't you know what I mean? Like maybe it could even be something as like that. I don't know. Um, Do you think she initially had nothing to do with the organization? Um, ooh, I don't know. It's, I've never, like, that was a really good fan fiction maybe idea, like movie yeah. about, yeah. like, Patty Hearst actually was a member the entire time, but I've never heard of it. And I didn't read anything like that in any of the articles that I read either. So, I mean, it's, it'd be really interesting movie book, but I don't, I don't really, you know, no one else has had this theory and it's not like, you know, it's not like anyone's really investigated it that I read that, she, you know, was she with them before the kidnapping or did she orchestrate her own kidnapping? So, yeah, I don't I don't know. She sounded like a smart person before she joined. Um, so I don't know. I guess here's the other thing. I assume when she was in college, right, they could have probably talked to classmates of hers and if she was getting this radical i assume she would never have shut the hell up about it like those people are want to do oh definitely yeah i can imagine her dumping the stephen weed dude pretty fucking uh (laughs) pretty quick or maybe she was using him as cover uh but berkeley 1974 definitely a good place to get radical yeah so anybody seen the documentary forrest gump (laughs) <laughs> when Jenny joins the radical group and she's like, hey, Forrest, meet my boyfriend. And then he slaps her and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I I'm know. sorry. I ruined your Black Panther party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there it is, Phil. Um, excellent job. I, I'll i be honest. I was one of the stupid 20-year-olds who didn't know that much about this story. And I am glad I did now. Um, or do now, I should even say. Um, if people want to give us their synopsis or what they think happened um, to Patty, where can they contact us, Phil? Well, if you want to give us your take, you can always hit us up on our email, podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you guys. You know, any support, any ideas for an episode, it's all greatly appreciated. Probably an even easier way to get a hold of us is on our Instagram, subliminal podcast. Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, same thing. All of the likes, all the shares, everything. It's all great. Uh, you know, get a hold of us. Cody and I also have our own Instagram accounts. Mine does not work anymore. Cody, you have one? Yeah, you can follow me at Cody Zabub. Uh, give me a follow, send me a message, do whatever you'd like. Um, last thing we ask you guys to do is to log on to iTunes, leave a show five-star review. Doesn't particularly matter what you say. Just type something, hit five stars, hit submit, type, I love liberation groups. I don't know. If you're a Spotify listener, it's even simpler. You just simply hit the five stars, hit submit. It's anonymous. It's great. It's nice and easy. And we greatly appreciate everyone who's taking the time to do that for us as well. Well, Phil, excellent episode. I think a lot of people are going to learn. They might know her name, but now they'll know her story. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>